From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Republican presidential hopeful Donald Trump has pledged to build a wall along the border between the U.S. and Mexico, but he's also building a wall we've heard much less about. This is a seawall. It would be about 200,000 tons of rock along about two miles of beach at Trump's seaside golf course in County Clare, Ireland. What's behind Mr. Trump's other wall? Also, as the San Francisco Bay Area prepares for future sea level rise, restoring some lost marshland could be part of the solution. All the open water you're seeing here are salt ponds. All of this used to be marsh. So you can imagine, if you look across that vast area, if all of that were a wetland and were acting as a giant sponge to absorb those storm waters, you can imagine how much buffering that would provide to the community. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump has famously promised to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border to stem the tide of illegal immigration from and through Mexico. Now there's news that the billionaire wants to build another wall, but this time it's not in response to human desperation south of the border, but in response to humanity's degradation of Mother Nature. Ben Schreckinger of Politico reported on Mr. Trump's plans and joins me now. Ben, welcome to Living on Earth. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. What is this wall you're talking about, Ben? This is a seawall. It would be about 200,000 tons of rock along about two miles of beach at Trump's seaside golf course in County Clare, Ireland, where they are suffering from some erosion. What is this erosion related to? It couldn't possibly be global warming, could it? Funny you should ask that. That is exactly one of the big things that's exacerbating this erosion. Trump's firm admits as much in a filing they made to the local county planning board in County Clare, Ireland, explicitly saying that global warming and its effects are going to make this erosion worse over the course of the coming century and basically are one of the chief reasons that they need to build this wall. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has told Irish zoning authorities seafront authorities, that his company is concerned about the threat of global warming, climate change, and therefore needs to build a wall. That's right. Specifically in this filing that they made to those authorities, they say that a likely increase in the rate at which sea levels rise over the coming century, and more importantly, an increase in the strength of storms are going to contribute to this erosion. By the way, where are these golf links? What sort of territory are they in in Ireland? They're on the west coast of Ireland, and they are just south of Galway, which is a popular tourist destination on the other side of the island from Dublin. And how did you find out about this? I've been following the story of this wall for some months in Irish media reports, and then I've been looking deep into government filings where I discovered exactly how Trump's firm is arguing that they need to build this wall. To what extent has this golf course already been impacted by climate change? Well, right actually when Trump bought it, it had suffered really terrible erosion in the winter of 2013 and 14. It was an unusually stormy winter, the kind of weather that people would point to climate change as a culprit in. And he suffered, in some parts of that golf course, 10 meters of erosion of frontage over the course of just that winter. 
that's like on a scale of 30 feet. That's that's a lot of frontage. That's right. Uh, there was one storm really just days before Trump closed this purchase that took away six to eight meters in the course of just a day. Refresh our memories here. What has Mr. Trump said in the past about climate change in his campaign? He's been for years before he even was running for office, a very outspoken denier of climate change, skeptic of the scientific consensus, however you want to label it. He at one point tweeted that climate change it was a hoax created by the Chinese to harm U.S. manufacturing. He since said that was a joke, but he's also called global warming BS. He didn't abbreviate that term. He's called it pseudoscience. And more recently, his statements have grown more complicated, I would say. He says things like, I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. The weather is changing. It's always changing. The last week on our program, we reported that he would uh, walk back the Paris Accord in a minor way, perhaps, or even in a major way. Not very clear about that, but clearly didn't think that the nations of the world getting together to address uh, climate change was a worthy cause. That's right. Trump, uh, whatever the international deal is, has called for renegotiating it, whether that's that climate accord in Paris or the Iran nuclear deal or our trade deals. The global order, including the global consensus on climate change, would be up in the air under a Trump presidency. Now, given that uh, around numbers, about two thirds of Americans describe themselves as worried, concerned about global warming, either a great deal or at least a fair amount, how do you think Mr. Trump will need to address global warming during the presidential general election? That's a good question. And Trump's position, uh, as you pointed out, does put him out of step with two-thirds of the electorate. At the same time, we haven't really seen many people voting on the basis of climate change as an issue. We've seen advocacy groups try to make this an issue that people are, are voting on. So far, they've had very little success doing that. Certainly, people are going to keep making an issue out of this inconsistency in Trump's statements. And it's a, probably a problem for him, not only on the issue of climate change, whether he takes it seriously enough, but also on sort of the broader perceptual issue as Democrats pick up where Marco Rubio left off, try to tag Trump as someone who is misleading the American people, the inconsistency here between what he's doing to protect his holdings and what he says everyone else should be doing has the potential to feed into that narrative. You're not popular with the Trump campaign, Ben. As I understand it, in March, they yanked your credentials, kicked you out of a press conference in Florida. Why doesn't Mr. Trump want you reporting on his activities? That's a good question. I suppose I wouldn't care to speculate if you were to ask Trump what he said is that I'm a dishonest third-rate reporter. He said publicly, at least, that I write very poorly and incorrectly, although uh, privately he has told me that he does respect my writing abilities. What's clear is that Trump and some people in his campaign don't want me near the campaign, don't want me near the candidate. And now Mr. Trump has frozen you out of all of these events. Uh, how's your job security? <laughs> my, uh, my editors have been fantastic about standing behind me, supporting me. They understand that Trump plays rough with reporters, has been doing it for decades, often unfairly, as I believe he's doing in my case. Right now, Trump has a private press charter. I'm flying commercial, following him around the country. I'm actually in Albuquerque right now, where I'll try to cover his rally tonight as a member of the general public. What response, if any, have you received from the Trump campaign regarding your story that his company is saying that uh, climate change endangers his golf resort in Ireland? 
I reached out multiple times to his spokeswoman, Hope Hicks. I didn't get a response. I reached out to Alan Garden, who is the general counsel of the Trump organization. I did not get a response. I suspect that in the coming days, Trump will be asked about this in interviews. But so far, mums the word from both Trump's business and his campaign. Ben Schreckinger is a reporter with Politico. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. The Mystic River that empties into Boston Harbor is a polluted nightmare that rarely earns more than a D on the federal government's annual water quality report card. And now a regional advocacy group, the Conservation Law Foundation, is going after one of the wealthiest alleged polluters of the Mystic River, the ExxonMobil Corporation. In addition to claiming Exxon leaks toxic chemicals from a storage facility in Everett along the Mystic, CLF says the oil giant has failed to prepare for sea level rise and storm surges related to climate change. Bradley Campbell is president of the Conservation Law Foundation, and I visited him in his downtown Boston office. Welcome to Living on Earth, Brad. Thank you. Now, you filed a notice of intent. Uh, Take me to law school here. Why didn't you just sue Exxon? The federal environmental laws provide for citizen suits, for citizens to enforce the law, but they also insist that we provide advance notice to the companies before we sue them, and also to the Justice Department and the EPA, and sometimes the federal agencies use that notice to come in and take over the case, often to protect the companies from aggressive enforcement. We don't think that'll happen in this case. We think the Obama administration will not essentially want to protect ExxonMobil, but we still have to go through the process of providing notice of the suit, but we will promptly file at the end of the 60-day Clean Water Act notice period. A number of states' attorneys general are investigating ExxonMobil for its uh, alleged role in sowing climate denial and allegedly uh, misleading investors and, and the public about the risks of climate change. Why is the failure to prepare for climate change at this site that you're accusing Exxon of different? Well, the attorneys general are looking really at the tools that prosecutors have in terms of the securities laws, in terms of the racketeering laws. We're looking more narrowly at the requirements of environmental laws, particularly the Clean Water Act. In essence, facilities like this have to certify to the EPA on a regular basis in sworn statements that they've done everything they can in their professional engineering judgment to avoid an unintended release of oil or hazardous substances. This facility is in constant violation of its permits, so obviously they're not meeting the test even in day-to-day conditions. And we're not talking about trivial violations. We're talking about significant tenfold exceedances of their permit, in many cases of very potent carcinogens, right in the heart of densely populated communities. In the case of a Category 1 storm, it would essentially be inundated, tanks would likely collapse, And there'd be oil and hazardous waste, not just throughout these communities, but also throughout the Boston Harbor complex. And so we see this as a bread and butter case under the Clean Water Act, where they're saying this facility's ready for the impacts we know are ahead, when in fact it isn't. Talk to me about some of the toxins that are coming out of this facility. Obviously, you'll have many different forms of petrochemicals, oil, gasoline, and the like, It's a toxic soup of various carcinogens like benzene and others that have obviously significant human health impacts, but also, you know, need to be controlled. And what we learned in our investigation is that ExxonMobil, this facility, has a treatment system that is overwhelmed whenever you have a significant rainfall. So we have videotape of their discharge point with oily, 
sheen coming out of it on a regular basis. So to what extent does your lawsuit hinge on the finding that Exxon knew about the risks of climate change and therefore there will be rising seas that could affect these tanks? Well, thanks to a number of investigations, we know that Exxon has known and its scientists confirmed as early as the Nixon administration that climate impacts were real, that they were potentially catastrophic, and that they were linked to carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions. But even as ExxonMobil designed their market strategy, designed their high-end infrastructure like oil platforms to withstand climate change impacts like uh, rising seas, more intense storm events, they left facilities that were in the heart of communities very vulnerable. Brad, you're saying that Exxon hasn't adequately prepared for the effects of climate disruption at this particular site. To what extent might there be many other industrial facilities that are are similarly ill-prepared? And which of those operators, by the way, knew about climate change way back when? There are a number of facilities that we're investigating in this region and beyond that present the same threat to communities. They're low-lying, they're on the coast, and they're vulnerable. And in many cases, there are densely populated communities surrounding them. And as you might expect, those communities tend to be lower income communities and communities of color that have always gotten short shrift from the regulators and enforcers. We think that there are many other companies that are situated similarly to Exxon, but Exxon's climate deceit has been the most egregious. They're not just deceiving the public in terms of a political debate to avoid regulation. They're also deceiving both the public and the regulators to whom they're regularly submitting false statements about the risks that are immediate to families and businesses that have hosted these facilities for generations. Why, in your view, have the regulatory agencies not called Exxon to account if, in fact, as you're saying right now, they're violating the Clean Water Act? There are a couple of factors I think at play. One is that as compared to water bodies that are in more affluent communities like the Charles River, the Mystic River has been underserved by the regulators and enforcers. The second factor that I think is important for this case is EPA really has not itself caught up with the implications of climate change in terms of how it administers the Clean Water Act. And so when they look at a certification as to whether a facility is ready, they, like many in the regulated community, still look back to, well, what were the historic conditions that this facility has to be ready for? And our view is both the law and common sense dictate that a facility should be ready for the conditions that lie ahead and not just the conditions that lay behind us because we know from climate science that the conditions ahead are going to be very different and they're going to be much harsher. Brad Campbell is president of the Conservation Law Foundation. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for your interest in this issue. We contacted ExxonMobil for comment. Its statement is posted in full on our website, LOE.org. And it reads in part, Operations at the Everett Terminal comply with federal and state government environmental standards, including monitoring and treatment of groundwater. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. (music) 
It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. More and more youthful plaintiffs are suing governments in the U.S. for failing to safeguard the climate and their future, and sometimes winning. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court recently ruled in favor of four young people who said the state had failed to follow through on laws that require reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and ordered it to get going. We turn back now to Brad Campbell, the president of the Conservation Law Foundation, one of the organizations involved. I asked him why this case is so significant. This is a landmark decision requiring economy-wide, mandatory, and declining carbon emissions limits. Massachusetts has one of the most progressive greenhouse gas limit laws in the country. And yet, beginning with the prior governor, the agency simply refused to issue the regulations to implement that law according to its terms and to impose declining emissions caps across a range of sectors. This is the law. This is the law. And we were of the view that the law was very clear. We uh, got a lot of pushback. Essentially, the agency tried to cite a bunch of unrelated regulations that they said constituted compliance with the law at least one of which was done before the law was even enacted. And the Supreme Judicial Court agreed with us that the law is mandatory. It's not just aspirational. It's not a suggestion or a guidance. This is another example where the courts have stepped in to make clear that carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases are a pollutant and a form of pollution that presents an immediate threat to public health and the environment, and one that has to be regulated, in this case, through declining emissions caps across the economy. So give me some numbers here. How far short of the 2050 goal that's in this law, cutting greenhouse gas emissions, is the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? Why are they in violation in the law? Well, depending on whose numbers you believe, we're somewhere between 18 and 25 percent off target. And we tend to not use the word goals because they really are essentially mandatory rather than aspirational. At the same time that we think we're off track and, and falling short on emissions reductions right now, the technology is available and the solutions are essentially in reach to get back on track quickly and reach those goals. How significant is it that the Massachusetts High Court uh, was unanimous? All seven justices ruled in favor of your position. I think it's very significant. It removes any doubt about what the statute required, and it really removes any kind of partisan quality to the decision. The decision was written by the most conservative justice on the court, one, for example, who dissented on marriage equality. So it's a decision that I think will bring all sides together on the need to find common sense solutions that meet the statutory mandate. And I think it's both remarkable and welcome that the current governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, his administration has embraced the decision and has indicated that they're willing to work with the environmental community on finding a good approach. Now, some of the pushback involving your case involves the closing of the Pilgrim nuclear power plant. There are many risks, of course, with the nuclear power plant, but one of them is not a lot of carbon dioxide. There's no doubt that the closing of Pilgrim and other nuclear plants in the region present an additional challenge in terms of our need for low or zero carbon energy. But there have been numerous analyses to show that we can stay on track, even with the closure of the Pilgrim nuclear power plant and others, that the technology and the ability through a smarter grid, renewable energy, demand reduction, that the tools are available to us right now to get back on track to a low-carbon future. 
Where else in the U.S. are there strong state laws regarding action on climate that, well, might also be vulnerable to a lawsuit similar to the one that you succeeded in here in Massachusetts? CLF has a similar suit currently pending in Rhode Island, which has another global warming solutions type act in play and where they're attempting to permit a new gas-fired power plant. And that's typical of the proposals we've seen across New England is really an effort by big coal and big oil to simply shift us from an addiction to one fossil fuel to another. If we're ever going to achieve the climate goals that are articulated in Paris, articulated in state statutes in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, or the climate goals that we need simply to maintain a hospitable environment for our children, we can only do that if we say no to this new generation of fossil fuel infrastructure and keep on pace to a cleaner energy platform. California also has a very strong uh, climate uh, program, AB 32, for folks who want to be technical. What vulnerability there do you see for legal action? California has made great progress and does not have the same challenge in terms of agencies dragging their feet or even industry resisting so much the need to reduce carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions. California is proceeding with decarbonizing its economy and demonstrating that you can do that and still have one of the most robust economies in the world. In the New England region and in other parts of the United States, the challenge is that you have multiple states that are essentially on the same energy grid and that don't have unitary laws. So it's a tougher challenge because you have to coordinate more states, you have to coordinate more regulatory bodies to get them on the same page. Brad Campbell of the Conservation Law Foundation. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection says that the state, quote, remains committed to meeting the Global Warming Solutions Act goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 25 percent below 1990 levels by 2020, as well as achieving greater reductions for 2030 and beyond. So much global warming is already inevitable, even if emissions are cut, that we will have to adapt to its effects, including rising sea levels. In some places, that will mean sea walls and levees. But many urban planners think that restoring the tidal wetland ecosystems that once buffered many cities could be a smart way to keep them above water. In the San Francisco Bay Area this June, voters will have a chance to fund wetland restoration throughout the region through a ballot initiative called Measure AA. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald has our story. The Bay Area isn't as vulnerable to sea level rise as cities like New Orleans and Miami, but there are plenty of people who are concerned. Well, we don't have the worst situation, but we can expect to have four to six feet of sea level rise over the next, I keep saying 100 years, but really now it's more like 85. Christina Hill looks out at the San Francisco Bay from Cesar Chavez Park along the shore in Berkeley. She teaches landscape architecture at the University of California. And my specialization is in how we adapt to sea level rise, particularly in estuary environments like this one. Christina says that a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction to sea level rise is to build a wall to keep the ocean out. She was recently a guest on a call-in radio show in San Francisco. People who called in all wanted to build a barrier at the San Francisco Bay under the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's 400 feet deep there. And the amount of water that comes in and out the Golden Gate 
in the tidal exchange is like three Mississippi rivers. It's a huge amount of water. So it would be like the Hoover Dam underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a bad idea for a million reasons. Seawalls do have a role to play in coastal adaptation, but they're expensive, ugly, and they can't be adjusted to changing conditions. What I work on is trying to help people go beyond that idea of the wall. Christina wants cities to build what she calls a cyborg edge, mechanical infrastructure blended with a living zone made up of sandbars and marshes. Scientific research shows that wetlands can help protect cities from the sea by reducing the height of waves. And they've shown that as little as 200 feet of wetland verge can reduce wave height before those waves hit the dry land. So that means less flooding, and that means a lower levee has to be built. Some kind of earthen berms will have to be part of the system, but they can be lower and cheaper if we do the wetlands. In the southern portion of the San Francisco Bay, wetland restoration is already underway. Commuter trains pass right by the Alviso Marina County Park, a small marsh in the heart of Silicon Valley. John Bourgeois is the executive project manager for the California Coastal Conservancy's South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. Standing on a wooden boardwalk in the park, surrounded by reeds and birds, he explains that all of San Francisco Bay used to look like this. So we're standing next to a brackish water marsh um, at the far southern tip of San Francisco Bay. Um, the size of this small marsh is pretty typical of what's left of wetlands in San Francisco Bay. Uh, we've lost about 85 to 90 percent of the tidal marshes. Some of those marshes were paved over for coastal development. Others were filled in for agriculture. But a lot of tidal marshes were turned into salt evaporation ponds. It all began way back in the 1850s during the gold rush. And little mom and pop salt making operations would come around and they would levy off areas of wetland, flood them up and evaporate the water to concentrate the salts and then harvest the salts. And that became bigger and bigger industry to where the South Bay and the North Bay in particular are now dominated by this salt pond landscape and it accounted for quite a bit of wetland loss. Unlike a parking lot, a salt pond can be deconstructed and turned back into a marsh. In 2003, the government secured rights to 15,000 acres of former salt ponds in the South Bay from companies like Cargill. And we've been returning these salt ponds, these industrial salt evaporation ponds, back into tidal marshes and other wetland habitats for the benefit of flood protection, public access, and of course, habitat. When the project started, it was really focused on restoring habitat for wildlife. The wetlands are home to many bird species, like this marsh wren. But sea level rise has given a new human urgency to John's work. A couple hundred yards down the shoreline, an earthen berm is all that protects a low-income neighborhood in Elviso from the water. The town is actually below sea level. Before the tech boom, this part of Silicon Valley was mostly orchards. But over the years, farmers overpumped the groundwater for irrigation, and it actually caused the land to subside, 15 feet in places. This is a mini New Orleans situation. We're standing on a levee where we've got, you know, the bay on one side and a very subsided community on the other side. And if it weren't for this levee, these people would, would flood. And they have flooded. There are people that show up to my meetings whose homes have flooded three times in their lifetimes. And so we're, we're really committed to making sure we, in addition to the habitat values, we really want to provide protection for them. Standing on top of the levee looking out at the bay, there's a strip of marsh about 25 yards wide. And after that, it's just open water. All the open water you're seeing here are salt ponds. All of this used to be marsh. So you can imagine, if you look across that vast area, 
if all of that were a wetland and were acting as a giant sponge to absorb those stormwaters, you can really kind of imagine the effect of that um, from, these, from these storm events of, of how much buffering that would provide to the community. Turning that barren salt pond into a productive marsh is a complicated process. But John says they try to let nature do the heavy lifting. We undo what the salt companies did years ago. We take down the levees, we restore the hydrology back into the old remnant channels, and we let the natural processes of the bay take over. But John admits it's not quite as simple as just getting out of nature's way. In the 150 years since the salt ponds were established, birds like the western snowy plover have grown to like the salt ponds. The plover is a threatened species, and John says they need to ensure that it still has habitat. So we've got this mix of, you know, large-scale natural marsh restoration and these more kind of intensive, more engineered, more designed areas where we're trying to maximize the habitat for the birds that actually liked the salt ponds. It's a difficult job, but they're making progress. So far, John and his team have completed work on 3,700 acres of former wetlands in the South Bay, about 25% of their ultimate goal. The biggest obstacle right now is finding a consistent source of funding. So far, they've depended on a jumble of small grants from federal and state government. But that could soon change. In early June, Bay Area residents will vote on Measure AA, a so-called parcel tax, where every landowner pays a small fee for their parcel of land, with cash going to fund wetland restoration throughout the Bay Area. Where exactly that money would go has yet to be determined, but the Salt Pond Restoration Project is exactly the kind of initiative the tax is supposed to fund. Measure AA does have an expenditure plan with uh, examples of projects that, that could be funded, and, and clearly we, we fit within their, their realm, and we would most definitely be applying for those funds uh, if and when they become available. One of the primary sponsors of Measure AA is the environmental organization Save the Bay, so I headed to its offices in downtown Oakland. Save the Bay is on the 18th floor, and from director David Lewis's windows, you can see all the way to San Francisco. It is very nice to be able to see the bay. David says that Measure AA would raise roughly $25 million a year over the next 20 years, and that money would go a long way to restoring the coastal wetlands. So we think this measure alone could accomplish 15 to 20,000 acres of tidal marsh restoration over its 20-year lifespan and leverage additional federal and state matching funds to help us complete the work. Under Measure AA, all property owners in the nine counties that touch the bay would have to pay $12 a year for tidal marsh restoration. Given the many benefits of wetlands, David says $12 is a small price to pay. Everybody who owns a parcel of land can afford a dollar a month to help make the Bay healthier and help make our community stronger and more resilient for decades to come. But not everyone in the environmental community thinks the proposed tax is fair. Brian Beveridge is the co-director of the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project, an environmental justice organization based in West Oakland, a mostly low-income neighborhood beside Oakland's port. Brian says that parcel taxes like Measure AA are notoriously regressive. A working-class homeowner in West Oakland will pay the same amount of money as a giant tech company in Silicon Valley. I, I don't think we can take it so casually to say, well, it's only $12, and say that this has no meaning. If we're going to stop doing regressive taxes, at some point we actually have to stop doing them. Brian is all for restoring the bay, but he says the public shouldn't have to pay for it. The very people who lost their shoreline in the first place, which is the public, are now being asked to pay to get it back. And we, we do this consistently. We ask, essentially, we ask the victims of a, of a wrong to pony up and pay to fix it. 
Brian works to reduce the impacts of pollution on people living in West Oakland. And his organization follows the polluter pays principle, which says that the company or organization that caused environmental damage should be the one that pays to clean it up. So if it was this great expansion of private development along the shoreline that caused the problem in the first place, maybe we should go back to the private, to the private sector and say, hey, you know, the, the chickens have come home to roost. Getting companies to pay for wetland restoration is not a totally new idea. In Louisiana, environmental groups have brought lawsuits to try to force oil and gas companies to pay for the restoration of coastal wetlands that they helped to destroy. Those lawsuits are currently stuck in the courts, facing fierce opposition from the industry. But there hasn't been a lawsuit in the Bay Area. And landscape architect Christina Hill says the government needs to find these funds as quickly as possible if it wants to avoid the worst effects of sea level rise. I mean, it's an accelerated problem. We have to work harder. We have to start sooner. Measure AA has to pass. We have to do the things we can do today uh, to be able to get ready for four to six feet. Wetlands need time to develop. But if you get them in place early enough, they could actually grow and keep pace with sea level rise. Christina says that investing in ecosystems that will cut the costs of rising seas down the road is just smart economic policy. The longer we wait, the more adaptation is going to cost. That's why I try to emphasize to everybody, we've got to spend the money now. We've got to borrow now, and we've got to spend now. Because if we wait until there's disaster all around the world all at once, money is going to be very expensive to borrow, and materials are going to be very much in short supply. If we fail to get ahead of the problem, she says, future generations are going to be stuck shouldering much larger costs. They won't have the benefits. They'll have all the costs, and they'll have all the impacts. And I think that's an intergenerational kind of inequality that we really should own up to. If Measure AA passes, it will be the first time that a major metropolitan area has voted to spend taxpayer money preparing for sea level rise. With so many U.S. cities along the coast and vulnerable to rising seas, it could be a model for the future. For Living on Earth, this is Emmett Fitzgerald in the San Francisco Bay Area. Coming up, how one part of the solar boom went bust. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from Wonder Capital, an online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. More information and account creation at wondercapital.com. That's wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In early May, the U.S. reached a new milestone for solar energy. There are now one million solar installations across the country. Solar energy is booming, yet one of the biggest companies seems to be on the rocks. Solar behemoth Sun Edison recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And we called up Nat Kramer, the president and CEO of Spruce Finance, to ask what went wrong. Nat, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nat, uh, you know, just a year ago, Sun Edison seemed to be thriving. I understand it was the largest solar company here in the United States? That's correct. Sun Edison was the largest solar company in the United States and was also operating globally. So what happened to the company? They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Uh, what went wrong? The fundamentals of the U.S. solar market are incredibly strong. The truth is that Sun Edison grew too fast. It fueled that growth with debt. and It didn't make enough money on what it was selling to customers. Who are Sun Edison's customers? Well, largely Sun Edison's customers were 
either companies that were buying solar electricity from systems that were located at their businesses, or Sun Edison was developing large-scale projects in the wholesale power market, and those projects would sell their solar electricity into the wholesale power market, and utilities would then buy that power. Let's break this down a little bit. Now, the wonderful thing about solar is that once you buy the array and the associated equipment, you essentially have no fuel costs, a little bit of maintenance, but not much. So that means a lot of money up front. How did that affect Sun Edison? Well, you have to finance it. And so Sun Edison, like all companies that are financing power projects, need to use equity, meaning their own money, and then either raise additional equity from new investors and or raise debt and borrow against the future cash flows coming from that power project. If you look at what Sun Edison did, is it spun off its power assets into other public companies, Terraform and Terraform Global. Those companies owned the power assets and were able to generate the cash flows from those power assets. So they were selling the electrons and were able to raise equity and raise debt. Those two companies are actually doing well. They're providing a return to their investors and are operating in the market. Sun Edison, when it sold off those assets and basically spun them out to other investors, was left with a development business. And that development business was looking for projects, so sort of selling projects, if you will. And it was holding a lot of debt at the same time. And if you take on too much debt, just like an average person taking on too much debt, eventually you run out of money and you go bankrupt. That has not been true for many, many other solar companies in the United States. And in fact, the industry at large is quite healthy and has been growing in the double digits. You see many successful solar companies, especially ones that are publicly traded, like SunPower or First Solar, who have operated consistently and um, you know profitably during the same period of time. People listening to us might think, hey, this sounds like the Solyndra problem of five years ago. What makes this bankruptcy different? Well, it's really entirely different. Solyndra attempted to create a new type of solar technology that it believed would be lower cost than the type of solar technology that is generally used by the industry today and that most Americans are familiar with because they've probably owned a solar power calculator at some point in their life. Solyndra bet that its technology would drive down cost faster than the cost fell for the fundamental technology that we use, and Solyndra was wrong. But that didn't really have any bearing on what happened in general with the U.S. solar industry. In fact, solar became more competitive. And because it became more competitive and created more value for end customers and for the American public at large, Solyndra didn't have a business. What happened here is that Sun Edison used that proven technology that had become lower cost and started investing in a lot of systems. They just grew way faster than their organic capital could support, and they borrowed too much money. And so it's really a story of over-leverage as opposed to a bad technology bet. Let's talk generally about the solar business. How do we deal with the fact that there's many utilities that have become somewhat reluctant to accept small-scale residential solar on the grid? So as the CEO of Spruce Finance, our corporate equity investors include five of the 10 largest utilities in the United States. And what that tells you, because we're in the business of providing financing to consumers to put residential solar systems on their roof, is there are many of the leading utilities that see residential solar as a fantastic growth opportunity and have invested in the company that I run. There are some utilities in the United States, notably in California and now in New York, 
where the utility is compensated for running the grid. And in fact, they have an incentive to get more people to use their grid. So they're excited about more distributed solar. They're excited about electric cars and charging stations and storage. There are other utilities who view residential solar or distributed solar more generally as a threat to their business model because they view it as a competition for being able to sell the end customer electrons. So either the utility is going to sell you the electricity or the distributed solar company is going to sell the electricity. And so the utilities are, in some instances, in some markets, have tried to take actions to basically slow down or stop the market for distributed solar. Now, to what extent is some of the utility opposition a stalking horse for the fossil fuel industry? Well, there's definitely an entrenched interest. If you look at what's happened in the United States, natural gas, solar, and wind are being developed more and more. Coal is being used less and less. So you are seeing investors and owners of coal and coal-fired power plants have a smaller customer base and see their market eroded. And naturally, they look at the natural gas industry and the solar industry and the wind industry and say, those companies are taking my revenues. What needs to happen to deploy solar energy at the rates that we need here in the United States? Well, we have great fundamental long-term federal policy that is going to support the investment in solar to keep driving down the cost of solar so that it becomes attractive in more and more states in the United States. We have fundamentally a strong financing industry in the capital markets to finance the investment in solar projects. We have great technology and innovation, both in terms of a Department of Energy research, fundamental research for long-term growth, as well as for corporate research, which is um, innovating every day. Where we find challenge is local policy that's happening at the state level. In some markets, you have a utility whose the way they get compensated gives them an incentive to bring more renewable energy, specifically solar, onto their grid. In other markets, the way they get compensated gives them an incentive to resist getting more solar energy. And so we need to resolve that conversation so that we are able to deploy more residential, commercial, and utility-scale solar in the United States. Matt Kramer is the president and CEO of Spruce Finance and chairman of the board of directors of the National Solar Energy Industries Association. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you all for taking the interest. Off to Conyers, Georgia now to check in with Peter Dykstra. He's with dailyclimate.org and environmentalhealthnewsehn.org, and he's been digging beyond the headlines for us. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. There's a story brewing out in Nevada that could be a preview of how electricity is bought and sold everywhere. Last week, the state's largest single electricity buyer filed for a Vegas-style divorce from Nevada Power, the state's electric utility. Okay, Peter, tell me, what's a Vegas-style divorce when it comes to a power company? Well, first, the story gets more interesting when you learn that the biggest power user in Nevada is the giant casino operator, MGM Resorts. They announced their intention to quit buying their juice from Nevada Power and seek better rates on the open market. The state requires MGM to pay an exit fee of almost $87 million for the privilege of shopping the grid to ship cheaper electricity into Las Vegas. Oh, so that's a lot of alimony, or maybe in this case it's child support. In any event, what does this mean for renewables, possibly? 
Well, an MGM executive named John McManus said the company wants to reduce its environmental impact and aggressively pursue renewables because, as you well know, Steve, nothing says Mother Earth more convincingly than ginormous flashing signs and fountains and golf courses in the desert. Well, and all those signs, if they're using solar power, they can do it guilt-free. Uh, in any event, Peter, I gather that power is cheaper on the open market at this point, uh, but what's the risk that they might go to coal? Well, right now, Nevada uses very little coal, almost none. Nevada's power comes mostly from natural gas. But let's talk more about Nevada and solar power. You'll recall that several months ago, the State Public Utility Commission, the same guys who are charging the $87 million exit fee, tripled the fees for installing rooftop power on homes, and they reduced the fees that utilities pay back to homeowners for the excess rooftop power they send back to the grid. <laughs> well, that kind of effectively killed rooftop solar in the state of Nevada, I think. It sure did for now, but there's a move afoot for a statewide referendum on the fees on rooftop solar on the November ballot. And one more little jolt about Nevada and electricity. Oh, what's that? Nevada typically gets about 3 or 4% of its juice from hydropower, notably Lake Mead and the Hoover Dam. And climate change and years of both drought and high water consumption have some experts convinced that Lake Mead could conceivably dry up at some point. Yeah, I think it's not a matter of if, but when. Hey, what else do you have for us today? I've got more solar. You know what the first thing anybody does when they go onto Google Earth for the first time? Well, when I did, I looked for my own house. Absolutely, me too. Now Google has a program called Project Sunroof that allows you to look at your own house and determine whether it's suitable for solar panels. The program launched last August. It's now available in 42 states and for 43 million rooftops. You type in your address and Google crunches data on shade, local climate, and other variables. You'll get info on how well rooftop solar would do on your home, as well as information on installation options and financing. And Peter, I imagine as a diligent reporter, you looked up your own house. Of course I did, and it told me that I'm not one of the 43 million homes available yet, and neither are four of the other places I've lived, but I looked up a random address in California, and here's what I got. Info on average sunlight amounts, square footage on the roof where panels could fit, and how much savings there would be on electric bills over 20 years. You know, I'm going to be curious to see the results when Project Sunroof makes it here to Conyers, Georgia, where my residence is completely surrounded by 60-foot yellow pine trees. I guess you're probably not in the best place to start for solar. Hey, what do you have for us this week from the History Archives? Well, 115 years ago this week, an intrepid explorer named George Reynolds and his wealthy backer, William Darcy, signed a deal with the King of Persia, allowing them to explore for oil in the land now known as Iran. And for seven years, Reynolds ran out of luck while Darcy ran out of money. But on May 26, 1908, first came the unmistakable smell of natural gas, then a gusher in the Iranian desert. And the rest, as they say, is history. Oh, yeah. Uh, Darcy and Reynolds' company became today's BP. Then BP and later the U.S. oil giants made subsequent deals in Mesopotamia, and that's Iraq now, of course. Then in the 1930s, oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia, and it's all shaped the Middle East and impacted world history ever since. And certainly the world's climate. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Steve, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Almost every natural ecosystem faces threats these days from human activity. And as Mary McCann explains in today's Bird Note, wildlife managers say a once common and rather inconspicuous woodland flycatcher is now of concern. Each year, by mid-May, 
A plaintive whistled song carries through the forests of eastern North America. It's the voice of the eastern wood peewee, returned to nest after a winter sojourn in South America. An eastern wood peewee perches inconspicuously in the shady interior of the forest. Inconspicuous, that is, until it sallies out to catch a flying insect. Or until it offers up that unmistakable song. But for the past 25 years, the number of eastern wood peewees has fallen across much of the bird's range. How is it that even a once common bird can decline so steadily? Fragmentation of forests into ever smaller tracts, as well as forest disturbance, such as heavy browsing by overabundant white-tailed deer, are part of the problem. So is the loss of forest in the bird's South American winter range. As a result, the eastern wood peewee is now a species of high conservation concern. What practices can help stem the decline of the eastern wood peewees and other forest birds? Well, providing economic incentives for private landowners who save forests is one. Enacting policies that promote smart growth and curb urban sprawl is another. I'm Mary McCann. There are pictures over at our website, LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, the amazing journey of a mountain lion in search of love. He had left probably when he was a teenager, about year and a year and a half old and set out on this incredible cross-country journey that may have taken him across at least six states and most of Ontario. The big cat who went walkabout. That's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Jenny Doring, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Peter Boucher, Adelaide Chen, Jamie Kaiser, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. And we welcome our new intern, Don Lyman. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jay Grigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.